If you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, there are men coming up the aisles right now and they have Bibles. And if you just flag them and they'll get a Bible into your hands, it'll be marked to the very passage that we're studying this morning. And God wants everybody to own a Bible. If you don't own a Bible, uh, make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you today. And uh, he wants everybody to know his word and to speak to your life through his word. So nothing like the word of God in the whole wide world. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 1. Now it came to pass in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, that Razan, king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, king of Israel, went up to Jerusalem to make war against it, but could not prevail against it. And it was told to the house of David, saying, Syria's forces are deployed in Ephraim, that is in Israel, And so his heart was, and the heart of his people were moved as the trees of the woods are moved with the wind. And then the Lord said to Isaiah, go out and meet Ahaz, you and Shir Jashub, your son, at the end of the aqueduct from the upper pool on the highway to the fuller's field. And say to him, take heed and be quiet. Do not fear Or be faint-hearted for these two stubs of smoking firebrands. For the fierce anger of Razan and Syria and the son of Remaliah. Because Syria, Ephraim, and the son of Remaliah have plotted evil against you, saying, Let us go up against Judah and trouble it. And let us make a gap in the wall for ourselves and set a king over them, the son of Tebel. And thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand, nor shall it come to pass, for the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is reason. Within 65 years, Ephraim will be broken so that it will not be a people. The head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is Remaliah's son. If you will not believe, surely you shall not be established. There we have it this morning. Let's pray together. You say, there's a sermon there? Yes, I hope there is. (laughs) Let's pray and find out. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Every jot, every tittle, every line, every precept, every paragraph, every chapter, every revelation of your heart and of your ways, Lord. And we pray you open up this passage to us this morning and that you would personally speak to each one of us through it. We ask for that work of your Holy Spirit, confident, Lord, in your eagerness to do so. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. The context of this particular passage is that Isaiah is prophesying to a king by the name of Ahaz. And Isaiah was, for the most part, a prophet to the southern kingdom of Judah. He ministered at a time when the nation of Israel was divided into two separate kingdoms. There was a northern kingdom known as the kingdom of Israel, and then there was a southern kingdom known as the kingdom of Judah. That division occurred uh, because of the... Uh, lack of wisdom on the part of Solomon's son, Rehoboam, and, uh, and a split occurred within the nation as a result uh, of, uh, of his lack of wisdom and at that point in Israel's history. And it occurred about 975 uh, B.C. The events of chapter 7 here occurred about uh, 240 years later in 734 B.C. There's a king by the name of Ahaz who is ruling over Judah. Terrible human being. Awful, awful human being. Terrible, wicked man. And one of the most evil kings that the southern kingdom of Judah uh, ever had. And at this time in history for the Middle East... The Assyrian Empire was once again kind of flexing its considerable muscle in an expansionist kind of mode. Assyria, as in 
a, a great nation and as an empire had already existed for some length of time and uh, it had expanded under its early kings and then it had a couple of kings that were uh, not so great and so they uh, the kingdom even constricted a little bit but then a couple of great kings came on their throne once again they felt strong they felt robust they began then to think about conquering lands that they had not yet conquered before and they set their eyes upon Syria, upon Israel, and upon Judah. They wanted to expand in, the direct, in that direction all the way to the Mediterranean Sea. Well, of course, this desire to expand on the part of the Assyrian Empire alarmed uh, the kingdom of Syria and also the northern kingdom of Israel. And so in that alarmed state, they approached Ahaz, the king of the southern kingdom of Judah, And they asked if he would join the two of them and put together a a three-nation confederation. Uh, None of them individually could stand against the might of Assyria, but united together they might be able to do that, to blunt this expansionism of Assyria. Ahaz declined. He refused to become a part of that confederation. And as a result, Syria and Israel, the northern kingdom, they joined forces together for the purpose of invading Judah, uh, defeating their army, overthrowing the reign of Ahaz, and then putting in a puppet king who would then be willing to make Judah a part of this three-country confederation. Well, all of these developments, uh, geopolitical developments, the threat of war, the beginning of war. We don't really have war in our country. We haven't had a war within our borders, I think, since the Civil War. So it's something that's kind of foreign to us a little bit. But this was, this was right on their uh, radar screen. This was what was happening in their life. And so the effect of this news in Judah that they were going to be invaded by these two considerable nations with their armies uh, created tremendous uh, alarm in, in, uh, upon Ahaz and Judah. It produced great fear. And the description of the fear in verse 2 is very poetic. They were gripped by a fear that was so great that it made them emotionally unstable. It was kind of like this news caused them to sway back and forth in fear in the same way that great trees uh, are blown back and forth in a great wind or in a great uh, storm. We would say that Ahaz and Judah, they were quaking in their boots. Now you put yourself in their position. It's easy to read a passage like this and yes, a war and two nations invading and Blah, 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 you know, and we're separated by almost 3,000 years of history, and we live within the relative security of the United States of America, and uh, we're sitting down with our book, the Bible, and we're reading it in the morning and our devotions, and we've got a nice cup of coffee or a cup of tea, and so we kind of make our way through it. And when you hit a passage like this, it's important to put ourselves to really feel the strength of the passage is to put ourselves in the position of the people that are in there and put yourself in Judah where you are about to be invaded by two countries and, uh, and it, with two tremendous militaries, by the way. And if you put yourself in the shoes of the people of Judah and the king of Judah, then you realize they were facing the loss of everything materially. With this invasion, they were going to lose their homes. They were going to be displaced from their cities. They were going to lose potentially everything that they had materially, their businesses, their jobs. They were also facing the very real likelihood that many of them would die. And not only would they die, but what is a a worse scenario for a husband or a wife is that the realization that this Armies are going to invade, and my husband is going to probably die in these battles. My wife could die, my children, my mother, my father, my friends. And so they had a very, very legitimate 
cause for fear. Real fear based in a real situation. They say that phobias are fears that are not based in reality. But that, that is a fear. It's its own kind of fear. But that's not the kind of fear that was happening here. This is a fear that is based in something legitimate, physical, right before your eyes. Now, experiencing this thing called fear is a reality for every single person in this world. It's universal. Nobody escapes it. Nobody escapes this emotion, this feeling of fear. It's all a part of our history. We've all experienced it. It isn't like some 60% of the world uh, knows what fear feels like and 40% doesn't. It isn't even 99% know what it feels like and 1% do. We may not experience fear geopolitically or in terms of war, but everyone experiences fear. And it's as old as the Garden of Eden. It was one of the first emotions that Adam and Eve felt following their fall in that ancient Garden uh, of Eden. And the Lord called out, we're told in Genesis chapter 3, to Adam and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard your voice in the garden And I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And this destructive emotion was introduced into human history at that moment in time. Now, some of us, everyone experiences fear. Some of us are more prone to it than others, maybe by virtue of life experience, by virtue of a a gene pool, natural tendencies, personality, these kinds of things. But we all have to deal with it. And so this rational fear, which they're experiencing here, it usually involves a threat of some kind, uh, a threat to our health or a threat to our uh, life or to our status or to our position in life, to our power, to our uh, security or anything that we hold valuable in life and now it's threatened, that produces fear within us. And then sometimes the threat gets right up in our faces, so to speak, and and it's right there, it's immediate, and then sometimes fear comes upon us because we can see trouble coming afar off. That's kind of what's going on with the children of Israel, with Judah here and Ahaz. They see the armies massing, they see their military strength, and they see that we're the, we are the uh, lunch that's on their menu, and they are coming our way. And when and there's that fear that we see coming uh, toward us, we see trouble coming very fast, and we realize that we don't have the power or the resources to avoid it. It's bigger than us. It's bigger than our emotional reserves, our financial reserves, our mental reserves, and uh, our physical reserves. And so the effect is uh, fear. Now notice God's answer to fear. So here they are. They're paralyzed with fear. They're trembling with fear. They're being blown in all directions by fear. So what in the world is God going to do to a group of people like this in order to come against the fear that they're experiencing? God's answer to their fear, verses 3 through 9, is his word. He gives them his word. He gives them his promises. He gives him his assurances. Verse 3, he told Isaiah to go to King Ahaz, accompanied by uh, Isaiah's son. And in verses 4 through 9, uh, we have the promises that God gave to Ahaz and Judah through the prophet Isaiah. And the first thing that God spoke to uh, Ahaz and to the nation is that they were not to fear Reason, the king of Syria. They were not to fear Pekah, the king of Israel. He described them as two stubs of smoking firebrands. They're as two burnt out embers. They're all smoke and they're no fire. In other words, there's nothing to worry about. Don't worry about them at all. The second thing God did is he assured them in verses 7 through 9 that their, their plot against Judah would not succeed. And sure enough, we know historically 
God was right. Both of those kings, each of them died within two years, bringing an end to their threat to Judah and to the region. But I want you to notice that apart from the specifics of this particular situation, I want you to notice that first line in verse 7, those five words, thus says the Lord God, that when they were gripped by fear, God's answer to that fear was to give them his word and his promises. God's first solution was not to get them out of the problem, was not to solve the problem within four hours for them. He gave them an answer that was more powerful than that. He gave him his word, his assurances, his promises concerning the issue that was producing fear within them. And God ended by warning Ahaz at the end of verse 9 not to make any decisions based upon uh, fear, no matter how strong his fear was, but to trust in God's word and to make his decisions based upon God's word. And God further warned him that if he chose to disregard God's promises, holding on to that is how he dealt with the situation. If he decided to take the situation into his own hands and try and fight it in his own resources, then he would not uh, be established. They has refused to believe God's promises. And out of fear, he sent a large sum of money to the king of Assyria, said, why don't you attack Syria, who is attacking us? And when you attack Syria, they will be forced to go back and defend their homeland. It will lift their siege of our land, and everything will be taken care of. And when he sent that large sum of money to the king of Assyria, Assyria took the money, and he did precisely as Ahaz had asked, and the plan worked out exactly as Ahaz had desired uh, that it uh, it it. Uh, would and Assyria ultimately uh, destroyed uh, Syria and Israel in a military campaign that lasted about two years. But then later, during the reign of Ahaz's son, King Hezekiah, Assyria then invaded Judah and virtually destroyed the whole land, everything but the capital city of Jerusalem, and they would have destroyed that too, except that God protected it miraculously. How many of you know, you don't have to shout out, but how many of you know you can make a bad trial even worse by succumbing to fear and then trying to fix your own problem rather than trusting in God's word. Always makes things a mess. God doesn't, never wants us to operate out of fear. The Bible says that God hasn't given us a spirit of fear. He doesn't operate that way in our lives. A fear of the Lord, but never a fear of man or a fear of circumstances. And there's that tendency that can occur so often when we face a situation that traumatizes us or it produces this level of fear in our lives. And the great temptation at those times of life is to think that the way for me to be, for my fear to be resolved, the single greatest thing that I can do to allay my fears is to combat this problem that is producing my fears. So I count up my nickels and dimes. I call in my favors from all of my friends. I pull a few strings from maybe people that I know in a position of power or whatever. I use every means at my disposal. And then I frantically throw all of that at my problem with the idea that if I can just get rid of this problem here, my fear will go away. And that's the greatest way that you can address a fear in life. And that's the way of, uh, that is a way of addressing the source of our fears. But we'll soon discover that it's far less effective than God's way. In fact, it's completely ina- inadequate. And here's the reason why. Because many of the situations in life that produce fear within us 
are completely beyond our resources to fix. If we're only going to know peace and be free of fear in life, in the times in life that our resources are greater than our problems, we will never know peace. All we'll know is fear. And oftentimes, many of the situations that produce fear in us in life are completely beyond our own control. They're controlled by others. We have no power to move those situations. Not an inch to the left, not an inch to the right. All of the power, all of the control is held by our bosses or held by friends or by the family or by politicians or by uh, the courts or whatever it might be. But if I can only know peace in my life, if I have the personal resources and the personal influence to fix every worrying circumstance in my life, then I'm only going to know fleeting moments of peace in life. So no, the greatest way to solve fear and to walk in peace is not by solving the immediate problem that's right in front of me because it may not be able to be resolved immediately. The greatest source for peace and the greatest weapon against fear is the Word of God. We must find a source for peace that is greater than us and greater than our problems. And only the Word of God is that. So what is the greatest thing that we can do when we experience fear in life? The answer is, again, to meet it with a promise from the One, that is the Lord, the One who is greater than all we fear, and to meet it with a promise from God's Word that's exactly what God did by sending Isaiah to Ahaz and to the nation. God is saying, you, you don't have to wait till this situation is solved. It's going to take two years for these two nations that are attacking you to finally be knocked down a few notches and be defeated and to be deported from their own land. That's going to take time, but I want you to know peace now. I want you to be freed from your fears now. And so what did he do in order to introduce a freedom from fear immediately in their life? He said, now you can have it by trusting in my word that I have promised that they will be defeated and they will not conquer you. And today we don't have to wait for a prophet necessarily to come up to us and give us a word from the Lord. We have this wonderful book called the Bible. It's filled with promises from God. And they speak to all of the circumstances that would produce fear within our lives. And then we find the passage that speaks to our circumstance. And we take that passage of the word of God, that word from God to us. And we apply it to the fear that's in our hearts and in our minds. So he says, well, what does that look like practically? In our lives. And I don't think there's any better passage in the whole Bible for instruction concerning this than the instruction that Paul gives in his second letter to the Corinthians in chapter 10, verses 3 through 5. Let's put it up on the screen so you don't have to look to it. You can see it for yourself. And Paul wrote and he said, For though we walk in the flesh, we don't war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They're not of the flesh. They don't come from me, but mighty in God. For pulling down strongholds, fortresses, literally, casting down arguments in every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. He says, we do not fight the flesh with the flesh. As Christians, we have far better weapons at our disposal than the weapons of our flesh. We do not fight fear with our own strength. Whether these fears are born out of something that is legitimate, legitimate fearful circumstances, or whether they're phobias, things that we fear that have no basis in reality in our life, or the fear that comes from spiritual warfare. 
And he tells us in verse 5 that we are to cast down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. And here you have the description of the person who tests their thoughts and their emotions by the word of God by what we know to be true about God and what we know to be true from God. Just because we think something doesn't make it true. And just because we feel something doesn't make it true. Lots of crazy things go through my mind that have no basis in reality. I feel so many things emotionally in my life which are not true at all. They would drive me into all kinds of different directions. I feel them, but they're not true. They don't have a basis in reality. That person doesn't think about me or feel toward me the way that I'm feeling that they uh, feel toward me. Emotions are just, they're nutty old things. I mean, we wouldn't want to be without them, but they can't be trusted. They're certainly not safe to just run wild and to believe that everything that we feel is legitimate and that we have to give it, uh, you know, absolute freedom within our lives. Whatever thought or whatever feeling that does not meet the standard of Scripture And the words of verse 5 here is exalting itself against the knowledge of God. It's exalting itself against what we know to be true about God and from God, from his word. And it's to be recognized then as a lie, as a falsehood. It is then to be taken captive. The idea is we arrest it right on the spot and then we cast it out of our minds. If it matches the word of God, it gets to stay. That thought gets to stay. That emotion gets to stay. If it does not match the word of God, then out it goes. The thought goes out. The emotion goes out. It's deceiving and not worthy of being kept in our hearts and in our minds. As the old saying uh, somebody said long time ago, he said, "I I cannot keep a bird from landing in my hair, but I can keep it from building a nest there. That's the whole idea about feelings and thoughts. Sometimes we can't help what pops into our minds. Sometimes we can't help the emotion that we feel in a given situation or in no situation. It's just suddenly there. So we can't control that down to where, yes, I can determine whether these thoughts will come into my mind or these emotions will come into my mind. We can't control that. But what we can control is whether those thoughts or those emotions can build a nest in our hearts and in our minds, whether they can uh, set up a home there and begin to make themselves at home. This whole testing of life, testing of my thoughts, testing of my emotions by the word of God. What matches stays, what doesn't match goes. This is known biblically as a disciplined mind. And God is very much into discipline, disciplined thinking. And we need to have disciplined thinking. Our culture that we live in is a very undisciplined culture. And sometimes people don't learn discipline until they're fired from their first four jobs. And then they realize, wow, what mom and dad never taught me or the mom and dad who was never around or whatever the deal is. But sooner or later, you got to learn discipline in order to function and navigate even in a nominal way within the world. But to prosper as a Christian, to be effective, as a, to survive as a Christian, let alone to prosper and be fruitful in your influence as a Christian, That requires a disciplined mind, a mind that processes life, even our own thoughts, in this kind of way. You remember when Satan tempted Jesus at the start of his public ministry? Jesus had been fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. So he's in a position of physical weakness. The devil looks and says, all right, he's physically weak, so maybe I can catch him spiritually weak as a result, mentally weak, emotionally weak. And so he, it's a strategic opportunity. 
that he recognizes he has. And so he tempts Jesus with three very, very crafty and seductive kind of temptations. It's interesting that Jesus answered each one of those temptations by quoting a passage of Scripture. Temptation number one came its way. Jesus said, it is written, and he quoted a passage from the book of Deuteronomy. Satan then offered the second temptation. Jesus then met it with a different passage, again, from the book of Deuteronomy. Third temptation came. Jesus then met that temptation with a, a, a quoting of a passage again from the book of Deuteronomy. The thought was introduced into Jesus' mind, the temptation into his mind by the devil. Jesus tested it by the word of God, didn't match the word of God. He rejected the thought, took it captive, and uh, in light of what God's word said, and he cast it as, the, as an unworthy thing out of his mind. Here's how it works in our lives related to fear, which is the subject we're looking at here this morning. So fear grips me, grips you. And I take this emotion, I take this thought, and I put it to the test of God's word. And I discover that it fails the test of God's word. Because the Bible says that God has not given us a spirit of fear. God never does that. He he doesn't prompt a fear of man or a fear of circumstances to move us. He can't be in that. So it's either the world flesh or the devil. God hasn't given us a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and a sound mind. My mind might then go over to 1 John chapter 4 where John speaks there and says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. There, because fear involves torment, but he who fears has not been made perfect in love. We love him because he first loved us. And there's the idea that I don't need to fear anything in the light of how much God loves me. If I knew how much God loves me, I wouldn't fear anyone but him. With a respect and a reverence, Jesus spoke in John chapter 14, and he said to his disciples and to us, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. And so the fear doesn't match the standard of God's word. And so we take it captive. We arrest it. We put it in handcuffs and we cast it out of our minds as a thought that is not worthy of a child of God who has a heavenly father like we have. And we might just pray something to the Lord in the midst of all of it. Lord, I just reject this temptation to become dominated by fear. It exalts itself against the knowledge of you, what I know to be true about you from your word. So I take it captive. I cast it out of my mind as defiling, unworthy of my life. I commit the fear to you, Lord, and I choose to believe your word, which tells me that my God shall shall supply all of my needs according to his riches in glory. That greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. That what God has begun in me, he will bring to completion. That God will work all things together for good in my life because I love him and I'm the called according to his purposes. That I'm more than a conqueror through Christ who loves me. And sometimes when an emotion or a thought comes in that way or a fear comes in that way and it's so strong, it's not only important to take the word of God, find out what it says, let that emotion or that lie be exposed for the lie that it is and do all of that within our own mind. But sometimes when the uh, battle is very, very strong, nothing wrong with saying it, uh, speaking out loud, proclaiming these things. Lord, I just reject this. Out loud. Now, you've got to be careful. You don't want to be in Costco or at O'Brien's maybe or Lucky's or whatever. You've got to pick your places. But I don't care. Do whatever you want. But they may think you're crazy for six aisles. But you've got to do what you've got to do. But there's nothing wrong in whatever environment is, you know, right for it or that you want to do it to just stop and say, I reject that. I reject that as a lie. That emotion is a fraud. That's going to lead me in the wrong place. 
Lord, you haven't given me a spirit of fear. And so this comes from the world, the flesh of the devil. I'm not going to have anything to do with it. And so I cast it out. And there's something about not only responding to lies and lie, emotions that lie, uh, thoughts and concepts that, that lie to do it, respond in faith in the quietness of our heart. But there's something about a verbal response also that can be very strong. And the book of Psalms is filled with this kind of thing, where the psalmist is verbal. These are songs that are being sung that have been put together. Yes, no doubt the psalmist had a lot that was going on internally, but you think about how much of their Christian life, so to speak, was external, how much of it was verbalized, how much was spoken publicly, sung publicly in the midst of great trials that they were facing. And there was power in it. Somebody might say, well, how long do I do this taking these thoughts captive and throwing them out? In relation to fear, we're only talking about fear this morning, but it applies to everything. But how long do we do it until the fear breaks? Until in verse 4 in the passage in front of you, until the stronghold of fear is pulled down. The fortress of fear is pulled down. We can remove the verse now. Somebody says, I did that. I took the thought that was fearful thought. I took it captive. It's the unworthy thing. I threw it out. It was like a boomerang. It came back 10 seconds later. What do I do now? Do it all over again. Do it all over again. And you'll throw it out and it'll take it 15 seconds to come back this time. And originally, if the situation is so difficult and so frightening and fearful that you may have to do that 60 times an hour. But then the next day, you'll only have to do it 30 times an hour. And the next day or the next week, it'll be just 15 times an hour. And the next week, it'll be just five times an hour until it becomes something that happens just every once in a while. Why? Because we have learned how to deal with a disciplined mind toward this thing called fear. And God promised in verse 4, as you saw before your eyes, that if we deal with it in this way, even strongholds or fortresses of fear or sin will ultimately have to give way. And as we deal with our fears in this way, something tremendous is being developed within our lives, something that is not an option for Christians, but it is a, a necessity. We are developing a disciplined mind, testing every thought and emotion, every decision by the Word of God because only God's Word can be trusted. Can you trust your mind when you are in a deep trial? I mean, not, not one that's within your resources to manage. I'm talking about something that spills beyond that. Can you trust your mind to see that clearly? You can't. Can you trust your emotions to process that properly? You can't. Not on a personal level. When you live in a world like we live in that's just crazy right now, crazy right now. And the emotions and the things that it produces within people, can you trust your mind and your feelings to properly process all of that. No, we need something that's greater than these things. We need something that's more powerful than that. We need something that comes from God. We need something from the Word of God. It's seasons like this in our life always, but especially we're acutely aware of it in seasons like this. We can only trust in God's Word. And this whole thing of taking these thoughts captive, testing them, taking them captive, out they go no matter how great the stronghold of the fortress is of fear, it will have to go. And, and it will go as our minds are disciplined and as we grow in that disciplined thinking. No matter how long you've been plagued by fear, no matter 
what your natural tendencies are to be fearful, no matter how deep the pattern is established in your life, no matter how much it dominates your life, and it'll be brought down by handling it in this way. It may not happen in an instant, but it will happen. And we need to respond to fear with the most powerful thing we possess, with faith in the very Word of God. And God has given us an entire book that's full of His promises to claim and to hold on to. I have read and I have studied and I have practiced 2 Corinthians chapter 10 verses 3 through 5 for 35 years as a Christian and for 30 years as a pastor. And I'm so thankful that there was a point in time early in my Christian life that this got explained to me so that I could practice it in my life and so that it could be a part of how I process life how I process my thoughts, how I process my emotions. Because not only is the world crazy out there, but we can be scary ourselves, our own worst enemy. About 15 months ago, just out of the blue, just one day it wasn't there, and the next day it was. And I was swept into the deepest, darkest, hardest trial I have ever experienced in my life. I could not believe that such a place existed in life. It wasn't depression. It was a lot of things. It was a lot of different things. And it was supernatural in its origin. It was spiritual warfare as it relates to me and my situation And this thing came in in a day and I was fighting for my life. For two weeks, I fought physically. I mean, I I couldn't keep food in my body. I couldn't get nourishment. I um, I couldn't sleep. And when I did sleep, I would wake up walk 25 feet from the bed to the couch in the living room and sit down. And it felt like I had run a marathon. I was so exhausted. This was just, thing was unleashed against my, my body and, and everything about me. I remember, I, and, it, and it, was a, it was a spiritual warfare. And I, just this last week, there's a certain pastor that I download his iPod most weeks and I, his sermons, and I listen to it each week. And he talked about an illustration this week in his sermon about a pastor who had been a pastor for 30, 40, 50 years, something I forget how long, but for a long time. And he's a godly man and a good man and had a, a very productive and fruitful life and ministry. And when you've served for 30, 40, 50 years, you can kind of begin to think that, you know, you've seen it all and you You've been through the worst and nothing else can be meted out that you haven't been through already. And so maybe your final years will be nice and quiet. And as he was speaking about this pastor that was in the middle of this thing, this pastor said, and then one day it was like God lifted up the lid to a storm drain and let out every demon in the universe to come and attack me. And he said, that's what he uh, felt like happened. And I'm listening to this sermon, and I I think I understand exactly what that uh, feels like. That trial lasted for four months, most acute for two weeks. Honestly, I don't know how I survived it. I lost all my margins emotionally. I lost all my margins mentally. But I knew it was warfare. I knew it was demonic. I knew God had allowed it. But the one single great thing that the devil tried to use to destroy me in that season was fear. Was fear. And I mean, he made fear so great 
that, I mean, I could taste it in my mouth. And I got to a place in the middle of that trial where I looked at things and I questioned whether I would hold on to my sanity. Would I, would I be able to use my mind for the rest of my life? Would I ever get to be a pastor? And then if I couldn't be a pastor, what in the world job could I hold in this kind of condition? I mean, it was a low, low spot that I was in. And the one thing I knew was how to fight the battle. I knew, as I said before, because somebody at some time in my Christian life told me that this must be met with something that is greater than all the sources of our fear. And that one thing is the word of God. And as God is my witness, I fought by the minute to hold on. And I did so with the word of God. Promise by promise, by minute by minute, by hour, until ultimately after two weeks, it broke off to a certain degree. And after four months, it broke off in its fullest degree. I, I'm a, I am a incredibly private person. It's really hard for me to share this. But that's where I was. And I thought I knew trials. I thought I knew spiritual warfare. I thought, I thought I didn't know anything about anything. And God was so faithful. And he taught me things I would have undoubtedly could not have learned any other way about him and between me and him. But I fought fought my way through by the grace and strength of God and prayer and handling the fighting of that stronghold and just the passage that I've laid out for you here today. It works. And you're in a room full of people who know that it works. We don't have to become a victim of our thoughts or of our emotions, or even the worst spiritual warfare that could be meted out against us. Where would we be in this world if we had nothing with which to fight the thoughts and the emotions in life that are not only unworthy of a child of God, but unworthy of a human being? What would we do if all we could do is just fall prey to those things day after day after month after month, minute after minute, wave after wave? I say before you all and with you all this morning, praise the Lord that there's something greater than all of those things. And it's the word of God. And it's the assurances of God. And it's the promises of God. Let me close by reading you one passage. A little further in the book of Isaiah, chapter 55. The Lord spoke through Isaiah and said, My thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. And my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain comes down and the snow from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth and make it bring forth and bud, that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. Praise the Lord. Let's stand together and we'll pray.
Thank you, Lord, for your voice. Thank you for your word. Thank you that there is something in this world that is greater than the voices that are in our heads, the voices that are in this world, the emotions that are in our hearts, Lord. And we thank you that that something is your word. And Lord, we thank you so much for the disciplined mind to be able to test by your word, to know what the truth is, Lord, and to be able to stand on that by your grace, even in the most confusing and disorienting of times. And we pray, Lord, for each one that stands before you right now who is in just such a season. And we pray, Lord, that you would take them into an even deeper experience of the power of your word to be able to bring down the greatest of strongholds in the newness and the greatness of the trial that they face today. And we pray that you use your word to keep fear not only from being established, but from becoming a stronghold and to remove it altogether. And Lord, I pray and we pray for each one that is a Christian there hearing this for the very first time in their life, that they don't have to be taken everywhere their mind wants to take them and their emotions want to take them. And we ask that you would take them by the hand and lead them, Lord, into this very important reality this thing called the disciplined mind and that you would establish it within their life and their relationship with you for the hours that you know are coming in their life when they will desperately need it to be in place. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.